0: I am tired. I thought I would figure this out. I feel like I have to be perfect. Always on. Always moving.
1: Why, Why is, it, is, is it so, it all so loud? loud?
0: <sighs> I desperately need a place where I can slow down. A space to call home. A home that allows me time to process. To discover who, who I'm I meant, meant to, to me. be. We were never meant to do life on our own. So I, I, I will be a part of something greater. greater. Good morning, everyone. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is John Perine. I'm the pastor here at Community Lincoln Park. It is great uh, to be with you. It was really fun to have Derek talk about his experiences. Derek, thank you. Uh, Chase, as well. Uh, We'd love to connect with you. We'd love for you to jump into this community, to make this community your own. And uh, joining a team is just such a wonderful, easy way to do it. Most of the people who have gotten really invested here at this church have done so through a team. So uh, excited to talk to you afterwards. But that said, let's continue in our series on U+. We're talking about the Sermon on the Mount. If you want to open up a Bible, if you've got it, to Matthew 5. We're going to have the verses up on the screen as well. Um, The Sermon on the Mount is—it's a very—it's a very intense— passage of scripture. I think it's pretty familiar. You've probably heard a lot of these verses before, uh, but Jesus doesn't really pull his punches. And so this morning, I want to talk to you about a very fun, light-hearted topic, and that is hypocrisy. <laughs> Isn't that kind of fun? Uh, so glad you're here to talk with me about hypocrisy. If we lean into hypocrisy, I'm sure you probably have had experiences of someone who you have known, someone you maybe looked up to or trusted, who didn't end up delivering on the way that they presented themselves in the world. Uh, One of my first experiences of this taking place in the church specifically was when I was 16. Uh, I went on a missions trip. This was a thing that I did with my summers. Anyone else here do the missions trip thing in the summers? Uh, And the organization that I was serving with had its CEO uh, step in to lead our team and for the whole summer, He was an incredibly kind guy. Uh, He invested in all these different students. He was connected to us. He, He, you know, invested in me, taught the Bible to our team. He was great. I looked up to him much like I looked up to any figure, mentor, leader in the church in my life. And unfortunately, that summer, I was shocked after the trip was over to come home and discover that he had been let go from the company because he had been embezzling funds, uh, something like hundred thousand uh, dollars that he had been taking, which to be fair I did not know a missions organization had hundred thousand dollars to embezzle, uh, but it understandably at 16 was shocking to me to realize that somebody who I had known, somebody who I had trusted, somebody who who seemed great, who in the eyes of both the world and even personally through my interactions with him, seemed immensely trustworthy and yet uh, turned out to be living a different private life than what I could see through his external behaviors. Uh, the term hypocrisy actually is a fascinating English term. Uh, hypocrisy in English is derived from the Greek. Uh, in the Greek language, the term hypokriste is a term that means literally to to make interpretations under the mask, under the mask. In Greek theater, if any of you got into Greek tragedies, uh, Greek theaters all the way back in the day, uh, actors would play different characters. There were not many professional actors in Greek culture. So one actor would get up and would switch masks in order to step into different characters. And as they would put a different mask on, they would make interpretations, judgments, under the mask to present the feelings, the emotion. They would change their tone of voice. Uh, This was their method. You'd put on the mask, and under the mask, you would present the character you were trying to convey to the crowds. I actually think this is a wonderful insight into what's taking place in hypocrisy. In hypocrisy, we find ourselves living under a mask, a mask that we have put on, that we are trying, doing our best, to present the right feelings, the right motives, the right judgments of what the mask is requiring of us. And yet, fundamentally, at the end of the day, in Greek theatrical culture, everyone knew the actor themselves was different than the mask that they were wearing. This is going to connect to what Jesus is diving into with the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember uh, last week, if you happened to be here, we talked about this very loaded verse that Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Which is quite heavy, uh, to be honest. We're going to keep exploring what Jesus was talking about when he said this. But if you recall from last week, the Pharisees were this group of teachers who were really serious about the Jewish law. So in the Jewish law, if you go back to the Old Testament, if any of you want to count, there are 613 commandments that God gives. The Pharisees believed that if they could simply keep all 613 commandments of God perfectly, then God would return. God would come. God would free Israel from the oppression of the Roman Empire. And so Jesus steps in to this very active debate that was taking place between interpreters of the law, much like people interpret the law today, much like there is contests and supreme courts that have to make decisions on how the law is to be interpreted. The Pharisees of Jesus' day would all debate each other on what the right way to keep all 613 laws would be, with the assumption that if you could keep them all in a perfect order, then righteousness would be accomplished. Well, Jesus is going to complicate the matter, with his teaching that he continues in Matthew 5. And interestingly, Jesus is going to step right into the debate. He's going to lean very close into the Pharisees who are debating very specific laws in the Old Testament. And as we're about to discover, Jesus is going to offer his own interpretation in contrast to what it was the Pharisees were saying was required in order for righteousness to be achieved. So uh, there's actually six examples Jesus is going to walk through. I'm only going to tackle three of them today. You can feel free to dive into Matthew 5 and look at the other three sometime this week. But let's talk about this first interpretation Jesus is going to offer. This is Matthew 5, 21 to 22. Jesus says this, You have heard it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Okay, you are sitting in the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount, and you're aware there are these debates taking place between the Pharisees. You hear, your ears maybe perk up as you realize, oh, Jesus is about to tackle one of the commandments of the law. In fact, Jesus is going to catch our attention by saying, you have heard it said, to the people long ago. I'm about to talk about the law that was given to Israel, and very clearly in the Ten Commandments, uh, there is a very clear and simple law, you shall not murder, right? We still follow that one to this day, Uh, at least we do our best, and uh, it's pretty straightforward, pretty clear. You would think this would not be one that was too complicated for the Pharisees to wrestle through, like, hey, don't murder, and you can check this one off your list, right? But in this law, Jesus says, I say to you that if anyone is even angry, they are going to be subject to judgment. Now, Jesus, in referencing judgment and connecting it to the first half of this verse, is saying the same judgment that is warranted for murdering someone, which in the Israelite law was likely execution, that normally, uh, depending on what the circumstance of murder was, was, uh, your life would be taken if you murdered somebody. Jesus is saying that same judgment will be required of you if you are angry. Wow. Um, (laughs) The people sitting in the audience of Jesus's teaching would have been scratching their heads uncomfortably at this moment, much as hopefully You are scratching your head uncomfortably at this moment. Jesus doesn't back off this, though. If you continue in this verse, I'm not going to have this one up on the screen, the second half of verse 22. Jesus doubles down by saying, again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which means you fool, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. This is so extreme that it just warrants us pausing and asking, what is Jesus getting at here? Like, what is going on in this teaching that Jesus is offering? How could Jesus say that simply to insult or be angry at someone requires this eternal judgment? Well, I think there's a couple things to observe in this rather loaded verse. Uh, The first is that Jesus moves underneath an external behavior into the inner disposition of the character doing the behavior, right? So if you go to murder somebody, it is likely because for some reason, justified or not, you are deeply angry at that person. And so Jesus has actually taken the law, which so often in his day, the religious leaders especially, were focused on keeping the, be- the appearances of, the external behaviors around, And Jesus is going to move all of the weight into the internal character of the person doing the behavior itself. Now, there is a consistent pattern we're going to see in these next two examples that is really complicated to hold. So I invite you to, to try to hold this sort of tangled thing with me. And the tangledness of what Jesus says in these examples is such that Jesus is so extreme in what he's asking of his followers that it is almost laughably impossible to keep what Jesus is going to require of us. Like, uh, let me ask you this. How many of you in the last week have managed to avoid anger? I don't need you to raise your hands. Just think about it. Oh, okay, good. There's a couple confident, uh, non-angry people in the back. I love it. On the sound team, no less. That's a very difficult (laughs) job to be not angry at. Um, As you go back even further, how many of you have managed to go years upon years without anger? It's almost impossible. How can you avoid being angry? You would have to ask. In order to avoid anger, you would have to have a radical, a radical inner reworking of your entire way of engaging life. Uh, Jesus, I think, knows this. Jesus knows that what he's saying is so extreme, it's going to make every single person who's listening uncomfortable. And yet, let me Just warn you of this. I I think as we go through these teachings, the other reaction then to what Jesus is saying is to go, "Jesus, you're not you're not really being serious, right? Right, (laughs) Jesus, we're not being serious, right?" And I think that too is in danger of missing the point. That what Jesus is asking for is a radical inner examination of the internal character of your heart. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, "Who are you really?" underneath the mask of your religion? Who are you really underneath the mask of your behaviors? Because it's possible that everyone here in this room can avoid murdering someone for the rest of their life, but it's probably not possible for you to avoid being angry underneath the mask for the rest of your life. Jesus is asking us for a radical examination of our inner being. So this verse is going to continue in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. Jesus is going to uh, continue to up the stakes. He says, Therefore, if one of you is offering your gift at the altar, and you remember there that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift to God. Now, this verse too, I think, is helpful to understand some background around. I've often heard this taught or preached in Christian circles, like this is a call for forgiveness and reconciliation before worship takes place. I think that's good. Um, But in Jesus' day, this is actually pretty extreme. Uh, The offering at the temple is the way that you signify you want to draw near and be reconciled to God in Israel. So what Jesus does is he prevents you from drawing near to God before you first go and address a grievance or an obstacle or even a harsh or angry word that has been shared with a brother or a sister. Now that seems intense enough until you realize that in Jesus's day, the temple is there in Jerusalem. Most pilgrims, even if you lived in Jerusalem, would have to work to get to the temple. But most pilgrims come from hundreds of miles away in which they've walked for several days in order to be able to come and present this offering at the temple. And so yet again, we find Jesus saying something extreme. Hey, You're standing there at the temple with your offering. You're getting ready to draw near to God. And instead of just completing the task of worship, it's actually so important you address your internal character, that you put this offering down. You travel home (laughs) hundreds of miles, days upon end, to go and reconcile with this person so that you then can travel all the way back to return and pick up this offering that you are giving to God. It's sort of absurd what Jesus is asking for, and yet it highlights Jesus' profound insistence that God does not want your empty behaviors. God is actually far more interested in the internal disposition of your heart. Jesus is going to keep going. This is the next, next example in Matthew 5, verse 33. He says, again, you've heard that it was said, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. Again, this is coming from the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy. Uh, in Jesus' day, interestingly, uh, if you were going to make a business transaction, uh, if you were going to exchange any sort of goods, if you were even making a, an agreement or a pact around some sort of trade deal that you were doing with your agriculture, then it was commonplace across the whole Roman world that you would make an oath. And typically, the only way to signify the seriousness of the contract you were about to enter into is to make an oath that says, if I break this, then I call upon my God. And if you worshiped the Roman gods, you'd name one that was most important to you. I call upon my God to strike me down if I break this deal. Now in Jesus's day in Roman culture, the gods were serious enough that you didn't really want to mess around with them. (laughs) Like you didn't want to break a deal if you invoked the name of your God. But for Jewish people specifically, This was a little more problematic because one, they weren't really supposed to say the name of their God, Yahweh, lightly because if they did, they'd be taking their Lord's name in vain. And if they made an oath to Yahweh and then for whatever reason they broke it, And some commentators point out here that breaking oaths did happen, much as breaking oaths today do happen, sometimes for circumstances outside of your control. You promise to trade a certain amount of uh, cattle in order to get whatever good you're receiving in return, and your cattle are stricken down by a plague you could not expect. Now you have made an oath before Yahweh your God that you will fulfill the duty of whatever you've committed, and you are in trouble. Uh, if that is your situation, Jesus is going to up the ante. This is what he says in Matthew 5, 34 to 35, in verse 37. I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes From the evil one. Now, on the one hand, this actually does sound great. Jesus is saying, hey, stop putting yourself (laughs) in this dangerous spot of trouble because you've made an oath to Yahweh that you cannot fulfill. Stop, stop just making these oaths. Stop speaking so uh, aggressively and controllingly. Stop pointing to God to have God fulfill whatever your business transactions are here on earth. And yet, what Jesus radically calls for in saying make no oaths, let your yes be yes and your no be no, is the equivalent of someone stepping out of the economic system of their day. Uh, Because let me ask you a question. If Jesus were to come here today and to say, uh, listen, anyone who signs their name to a contract is making a commitment, a covenant before God that they cannot keep. Therefore, my followers will never sign their name to anything. Their yes can simply be their yes, and their no can be their no. Uh, You and I would probably go, wow, yeah, man, okay, I like that, that's good, I I really, I want to be that kind of person, yes means yes, no means no, and then you would go to the bank, (laughs) and you would go to open up a mortgage on a house, or you'd go to get a loan on a car, and you'd say to them, hey, listen, um, it's cool, my yes means yes, and my no means no, so... Trust me, I've got these mortgage payments covered. And they'd say, that sounds very nice. Go ahead and sign your name here on the dotted line, please. Uh, Jesus is calling for something so radical that it wouldn't functionally work in the ancient world that Jesus was in. And yet, l- let me draw your attention to where the heart of this, this sort of tangled mess is. The heart of this is that Jesus is saying, "Olds inherently are trying to present an appearance of control in a world that is inherently uncontrollable. You cannot guarantee with an oath the commitment you are trying to make in whatever the transaction is. And so, live instead as a person, as a truly genuine person that is able to stand with integrity in their language, that the words they say are so sincere, are so secure, that when you show up in a room, your yes means yes, And your no means no, because there is no mask on as you stand before whoever you are talking to. Again, the temptation is to dismiss the radicalness of what Jesus is saying, but I have to ask, is there not something here, particularly for those of us who find our words are the easiest tool we have to manipulate, to coerce, to woo, to attract Imagine instead that we could be the kind of person, even with our language, that stands with no mask on. Here's one last example. This is Matthew 5, 38 to 42. Jesus says, You've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek as well. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. Now, this law that Jesus is referring to is is known as lex talionis. Lex talionis is built off Leviticus 24, In Israelite law, the basic principle was give according to its kind uh, as you receive. So if somebody takes your eye, uh, and this is normally the radical law in the ancient world that apparently did happen, uh, then you are allowed to take their eye in return. Uh, If someone steals your cattle, then you deserve as right the ability to receive a cattle back from them as well. What Jesus obviously does is he flips this entire law on its head. He instead says, as we return to Matthew 5, 38 to 42, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist an evil person. Uh, In in essence, it feels as if Jesus is almost contradicting this eye for an eye law, and yet Jesus, Jesus doesn't even say don't resist. Jesus says give according to its unkind. Give that which they don't even deserve back to them instead. So if you get slapped on the right cheek, turn and offer them the other cheek as well. In ancient culture, a slap on the cheek was the closest thing you could do to a declaration of war. Uh, it was an attempt to steal honor from somebody. Jesus says, offer them more honor. Give them all the honor that you have. Uh, I, I love, if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If you can indulge me in just the humor of this for a moment. Uh, the picture anyone would have imagined is that of a person standing in court and in ancient Customs, you had a a sort of shirt. It was like a dress. That was your basic covering. And then you had a coat, a cloak that kept you warm. If you were ever traveling, your cloak was your pillow. I mean, this coat was very important and most people only had one coat. So Jesus says in this act, if your shirt is required from you, you hand them your cloak as well. Essentially, you would be standing naked before a courtroom because you had followed through on Jesus's words which is, which maybe got a laugh. I, I want to give Jesus some credit here. I think uh, Jesus was trying to say, hey, this is extreme. This is ridiculous. Uh, the, what I'm suggesting to you, that you would literally give everything you have, but he doesn't back off it. He says, if a Roman soldier requires a mile from you, you help them from out, go to. They haven't even asked for it, but give them another one. In fact, if anyone asks for something from you, don't hold back. Give it to them. Uh, one commentator notes, if you follow through to the word, what Jesus says in this passage, people around town would immediately know that all your possessions were fair game and you'd have nothing. You'd be, you'd be done, you'd be naked <laughs> with no possessions, slapped on both cheeks. And yet, this highlights precisely where Jesus is trying to push us. Do we, do we see the gift of who Jesus is that can allow us to live so free, so open-handed? that even our honor, our possessions, our, our bodies themselves are not actually in need of defending or protecting or securing, but instead are fully entrusted to God. I, I, again, this is the best I can give you because I realize this is tense. I, I really think what Jesus is getting at here is can you live without a mask on? Can you actually release whatever it is you are hiding behind in your life so that you can stand fully before God fully secure, fully at peace with a God who can provide and meet every one of your needs. Um, Jesus is not done. We'll pause here in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, but this, to me, is, is an incredible challenge. <laughs> I, I have seen and witnessed hypocrisy uh, in religion. I've also seen hypocrisy outside of religion. Uh, I've seen hypocrisy in close friends I've seen hypocrisy in leaders that I looked up to, and unfortunately, probably the worst part is, I have seen hypocrisy in myself, right? If any of us take what Jesus is saying on the Sermon on the Mount seriously, we find that we cannot arrive at any other conclusion than that we, on our own, cannot live up to this calling Jesus is placing on us. We cannot actually, on our own effort, enter into this kingdom that Jesus is putting in front of us. And so if that's the case, what good news do we have this morning as we wrestle with hypocrisy? What good news do I have to offer to you if you either fear the hypocrisy within or you have seen the hypocrisy without? Well, I think if you hold the gospels together, there are three invitations. I don't know that any one of these on their own Solves the challenge that is hypocrisy and our own temptations to put back on the mask. But I do think these th- these three directions can offer us just a little bit of hope as we sit here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount and ask what Jesus is really inviting us into. So first, if you were to ask me where do we go as a community to address the hypocrisy that we are capable of, I would encourage us. To step into the practice of confession. Confession. Confession, if you think about it, is the great disruptor of the mask. Confession is, is the revealing, the unveiling of what is truly going on. Uh, confession allows you to look within and ponder uh, where perhaps in these words Jesus has just shared, you yourself Feel the grind of struggle, uh, that sense of, oh no, I hope he's not asking that of me. And yet, confession is also the only way to freedom and release when it comes to the kingdom that Jesus invite- is inviting us into. Uh, one of my favorite stories Jesus tells is that of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So, this is helpful with all that's been going on in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus is going to get to this later in the Gospel of Luke. He says this, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like the other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like that tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I think this invitation is is the only relief we find in the Sermon on the Mount to say At any place we have failed to live up to Jesus's call to us in a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, our only hope is to confess, to call out to God, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Yet I don't want to just leave you with confession because even confession can be twisted as a mask of sorts. Confession can become yet another practice that you are attempting to use to manipulate God or others. And so I think the next invitation, as you confess, is to move into the path of imitation, Uh, specifically the inward-outward transformation of one walking closely with Jesus. Um, I stumbled across this last week in preparing for this message a psychological term called the chameleon effect. Have you ever heard of the chameleon effect? Uh, The chameleon effect is the neuroscientific understanding, as human beings have been observed, that as we dwell in the presence of others, especially consistently. Our brains are hardwired to do the hard, open, receptive work of imitating subtle micro-expressions and movements around us in order to both convey ease, connection, but then also just to sort of establish bonding and safety. So uh, the easiest example for me is that when I moved to Northern Ireland, uh, where my wife is from, we just got back li- about a year ago, um, I found that as the Northern Irish spoke, I could not but help notice a certain lilt, start to pull my, the end of my sentences up. Uh, certain words that they said, I realized if I keep holding to trash can, I am never going to be able to communicate my need for understanding where the bin itself is. Uh, but unfortunately, If it was just Northern Ireland, you could say I was being enculturated into their people. Uh, I then flew from Northern Ireland back to Arizona, where I am from, uh, where my family still is. And while I was in Arizona, I reconnected with a few old high school friends, I'm sure this has happened to many of you, and suddenly I found myself repeatedly saying, bro, I know, bro, oh, bro, bro, you're so right, bro. Uh, I I had a moment, I was like, I've never used this many bros in the Midwest before, and yet, (laughs) This is the ease with which I moved back into the culture of my people. Um, if, If that's true, the profound transformative insight is that who we spend time with are those that begin to shape who we actually are, even under a mask. And so what the Christian faith has always invited you into is to imitate Jesus himself. The task of discipleship is not to simply walk on your own and trust that you can figure this all out. It's not even, dare I say, to follow really good communicators, really good podcasters, really good teachers, really hip mega church leaders. But instead, the invitation of Christianity is to imitate Jesus. Even as I think back to that story of hypocrisy, I can see how easily in the church what often happens is I think I'm imitating Jesus, but actually I'm just imitating some leaders who have been around me and who have been good to me, and sometimes who have wonderful influences on my life. But if you yourself are disillusioned, if you're disenchanted, if if there's a sense for you that the church has truly failed you, uh, the only hope I can offer you is not to find another new church leader who themselves might yet again fail. The only hope I can offer you is to look towards Jesus himself and to try to walk with and imitate Jesus If you go back through these examples Jesus gives, the example of anger, the example of oath-taking and retaliation, Jesus is actually the only one I can think of who can truly live up to the call for inner, outer righteousness that he presents in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus himself is the one who turns the other cheek, who radically is stripped, who offers to go the further mile, who carries the cross all the way to Golgotha. And so this is, this is what I have for you. This is the invitation. Would you look towards Jesus so that you can imitate him? Let me give you one last thought though. I think even as I was pondering this message, confession and imitation are helpful, but even still confession and imitation can let us down, it can, can find hypocrisy brewing. And so the last thought I have, if it's not a shallow or insincere one for you, is to point you to the deepest hope any of us can have when it truly comes to righteousness, and that is love itself. Uh, There's this famous sermon that was offered by a Scottish scientist and theologian in the 18th century. He was teaching out of St. Andrews, and uh, his name was Thomas Chalmers, and Chalmers observes that if you simply tell someone to not do something it's very rare for that sort of commandment to uh, enact its intended return. Because inevitably you tell someone, hey, this isn't what you should do, this isn't what you should do, this isn't what you should do. Uh, The guardrails get set in their life, and yet there's all this emptiness. There's all this gap between them and the guardrails. And even if they wander close, maybe they step over the line, maybe they wander back, uh, all they have is the guardrail itself to keep them from falling off the edge. And so Chalmers, as he's reflecting on this, says the only way to cast out a lesser love is to receive a greater love instead. And for Chalmers, he's looking at drink, he's looking at the love of money, he's looking at the love of the world, and he says these are, in fact, very powerful affections. Uh, these are things that naturally and fully occupy our hearts. How could we ever hope to dislodge the grip Of such powerful loves. How do we dislodge the love of our own mask that we have grown so used to wearing? Well, Chalmers says, we need the expulsive power of a new affection. We need an even deeper and greater love if our hearts are going to be drawn not towards the guardrails or the edge, but drawn back into a deeper and more breathtakingly beautiful center. How do you summon that kind of love? How do you fall in love with God? Well, I think what we are trying to do here as a community, uh, when we gather for worship, when we open the scriptures, and when in just a moment we're going to turn to this table, is that we are trying to create a space in which you might fall desperately in love with God. In fact, find that the love of God is so compelling that the other lesser loves of your life are pushed out. I I think truly the only hope we have to avoid hypocrisy is to pursue an even deeper love of Christ. So let, let me pray over us as we turn to the table. Heavenly Father, we ask for that which we cannot summon in ourselves. We ask for a love of you that's so profound that it would rip masks off that we have been wearing, that it would give us the courage to confront the unexamined areas of our hearts. And Lord, even as you call us to this breathtaking vision of righteousness, give us the love that says we want to pursue that kind of righteousness, a righteousness in which we forgive those who wrong us, in which we speak with integrity and clarity of being, in which even those who harm us, Lord, summon us to an even deeper forgiveness and love. This is truly a power that is beyond us. And so we pray, Lord, humbly, that you would teach us this kind of love in your son, Jesus. And in his name, we offer this prayer. Amen.